Good morning, everybody. And it is great to be with you. If you would open your Bibles to the book of Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes. We are in a series on the book of Ecclesiastes. And as we uh, go there, it's not a book that we many times uh, think about, that we many times study. Um, and sometimes it can just be flat out depressing. So um, I'm hoping that today we don't find it as such, but we find it as life-giving. I'm going to read uh, Ecclesiastes chapter 2, verses 12 through 17. As we think about today, this whole idea over the book of Ecclesiastes, we're asking this one question, what do we gain? What do we gain in our life's pursuits? What do we gain with all of the energy that we exert throughout our lives? And today specifically, we're asking the question, what do we gain in pursuing wisdom over folly? And so I want to read Ecclesiastes 2, then I'll pray, and we will learn today from God's Word. The Word of God is as follows, Ecclesiastes chapter 2. 12 through 17. Then I saw that there is more gain in wisdom than in folly, as there is more gain in light than in darkness. The wise person has his eyes in his head, but the fool walks around in darkness. And yet, I perceive that the same event happens to them all. Then I said in my heart, what happens to the fool will happen to me also. Why then have I been so very wise? And I said in my heart that this also is vanity or a vapor. For of the wise, as of the fool, there is no enduring remembrance, seeing that in the days to come all will have been long forgotten. How the wise dies just like the fool. So I hated life because of what is done under the sun was so grievous to me. For all is a vapor, it's vanity, a striving after the wind. Let's pray, family. Father, we stop right now and we ask that in our hearts of swirling affections, that you would meet us. Lord, we call upon you right now as the one who is worthy, worthy of praise, worthy of our thanksgiving, worthy of our expressions of our deepest need and our saddest moments, our deepest pains and our highest joys. Father, I just want to declare what your word says, you are our portion. You're enough, you satisfy and I think all of us could say with the psalmist, my flesh and my heart, they fail. We get weak. But Father, we want to say, you are the strength of our lives. You are our portion forever. You satisfy us. You are the substance when everything is temporary. And so, Father, fill us today with trust. Trust that your word is true. You love us. It's good to be near you. Help us to believe that right now we're not alone. You, the living God of the universe, has a great desire 
to touch each one of us, to change each one of us, to comfort each one of us, to wipe away tears, to give hope, to fill us with love. Father, you are our refuge. Open our eyes that we might see what you are saying in the scriptures. Open our hearts that we might receive it and be changed by the scriptures. Fill us with love for you and others. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So, when my kids were little, we would uh, sing songs to them. Some of you do that as well. Um, and these little kids' songs, some of them are pretty memorable. They're kind of handed down from multiple generations. And sometimes you just sing them because the, you've heard them, they were sung over you, but you haven't really thought about those words. Like, for instance, the one we used to sing, row, row, row your boat gently down the stream, right? Merrily, 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 life is but a dream. What kind of falsehood, new age mess is that? Like, but I sang that thing like a beast, you know, and so I was like, okay, what in the world are we talking about here? What does that even mean? So I had to look it up. And you know when you look up something, it'll say lyrics, and then you can click a button that says full lyrics. So I was like, this thing has more verses? So I went and I clicked it. It just repeated the same verse four times. I was like, that's not okay. That's not full lyrics. It's just the same thing four times. Okay, so I looked it up. I was like, what does this mean? Well, apparently... It was meant to mean take responsibility for your life. Keep going. Keep rowing, I guess. Don't give up and have a positive outlook on life. I don't know of any soul on the planet that got those messages from that song. But needless to say, that's what its intent was. So, but I am think have a positive outlook on life. And then I lived my life yesterday. So yesterday... I didn't sleep very well, so woke up pretty early, and that, was, that can be discouraging, but I started spending time in the Word, and it was sweet. The Lord met me. It was encouraging. Then my wife and I, we went on a walk, and that was great. We, it was beautiful outside, and we enjoyed our time out walking, and then... I dealt with some tasks on the list, some car issues, some house chores. And, you know, it kind of feels good when you kind of make that list get a little smaller. And so I was doing that, so things are going well. Then I remembered, hey, I actually have a gift card to Chipotle. How about we do that for lunch? So my boy Bear had a basketball game, so on our way to our basketball game, we were going to drop him off. And then I was going to go get lunch uh, for the others who went to the game. So I was so excited. Well, what I love at Chipotle, probably a little more information than you wanted to know, I love their quesadillas. But for some weird, strange reason, you can only get them if you order online. What kind of policy is this? But anyway, I lament, I move on. So I ordered this beast online, and then I show up to get my wife and Mercy's food. So I get their food, and then I go to the little pickup thing, and I was like, do you have it? He says, what's your name? I said, Sean. He says, I don't have an order for Sean. I was like, but I just ordered it. And he was like, I don't have one in the queue. So I looked, and I ordered this stupid thing at a Chipotle halfway across town rather than the one I'm standing in. I was going to be late for the game. So I didn't eat, went back to the game to watch my son's game. So then I'm watching my son's game, and you know when you watch these kids' games, there's, sometimes there's a child 
Sometimes it's your child, but this wasn't the case this time. Sometimes there's a child that is just really proud, kind of arrogant. And there's something in my heart that's like, it's not okay if this kid wins. And yet, we lost and this kid won. I was like, that's not okay. That's just not okay. Something's wrong with the world. And then I go and Duke loses. I know, Virginia, brother, okay, there you go, Hokie. So it was a scam. Even the ACC said they blew that last call in regulation. But that's not the story. The story is it felt like things weren't right in the world. And then, you know, I'm wearing this color, so all Tar Heel fans are like, yeah, uh uh-huh, it is right with the world. But I'm telling you, it's not right with the world. So then I'm watching Tennessee. Tennessee's down by 17. They come all the way back. They get up. They're ahead by two, and a guy heaves it from half court, and we lose. This is twice in one week that we've lost with a last-second shot. So this world is not okay. It is broken, and it is a mess. What is the deal? Why does it have so many ups and downs? Why is it I can be elated one minute and feel my emotions have been ripped apart from me the next? It's because our world is broken. Tonight, many will watch the Super Bowl Some who are really rooting for one team, when that team wins, they'll be elated. Other people, they'll be sad when their team loses. It's so bizarre how we do this. Sometimes if you're a true fan, you'll wear a shirt for your team, and then you're convinced that because you wore that shirt or those socks, your team won. And so you just keep trying that out. And when they win again, you keep believing it's your shirt and your socks that made them win. That's just not how this works. And then they lose, and it's just like, this world is broken. The shirt didn't work. Why is life up and down? Why can it be great one moment? Why is life like smoke? It looks solid, but when you grow to, go to grab it, it goes through the fingers. Why is that? And so, you know what? I remembered Back when I was singing Row, Row, Row Your Boat to my kids, I rewrote the lyrics because I began to think about what in the world that song meant, which I still didn't know. So I rewrote the lyrics to be more theologically accurate. Row, row, row your boat gently down the river. Merrily, 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 life is but a vapor. And now we're in Ecclesiastes. That's the message. How do you get happy and vapor in the same sentence? When the world is broken up and down, life is a vapor. It's like smoke. Is it really possible to find joy? What do we gain? This is the message of Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes chapter 1 reads like this, the very first verse. The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Now this word preacher, it's the Hebrew word kohelet. It means one who gathers. It means a teacher, one who's gathered to teach a message. And it says son of David, king in Jerusalem. We're really not fully sure if this is Solomon or if it's a later son or if it's someone who's learning from the wisdom of Solomon. It doesn't really matter. I believe probably it's more Solomon. But what's interesting here is someone is describing what this teacher is teaching. 
So what you have is an author over the book who is telling us there's a teacher, maybe Solomon. And the whole book records the message of this teacher. And then the author in chapter 12 gives us the punchline, tells us what the teaching matters. So the teacher is a character in the book. The author is the one that tells us what the book is about, what the teacher's message is about. And he begins with these words, says the preacher, vanity of vanities. Vanity of vanities. In Hebrew, when you repeat something, it's for emphasis. <laughs> this word is repeated 38 times in this book. So we should probably understand it. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. What does man gain by all this toil, this exertion of energy under the sun? What is vanity? I've already alluded to it when I sang the song. It's vapor. It means smoke. The Hebrew word is hevel. Pronounced H-E-V-E-L. In Hebrew, it's H-E-B-E-L, but you pronounce it hevel. It's like breath. As Pastor Runs your let us in last week, you go out in the cold, you go, and you watch it. It looks like it's there. You do that. You can't touch anything. It's hevel. It's smoke. It's vapor. What does it mean? It means temporary and fleeting. And then it also means it appears solid and dependable, but when you grab it, there's nothing there. Hevel, it's a vapor. This is life. And so when the passage says, what do you gain by all the toil? Why do we exert so much energy? This question is asked regularly throughout the book chapter 2 verse 11 chapter 2 verse 22 chapter 3 verse 9 chapter 5 verse 16 what do we gain why are we exerting all this energy energy for what and the book of ecclesiastes kind of outlines the many different things we can think are substantive we can think we can build and lean our lives upon only to find that they're like a broken crutch you lean on it with all your weight and it collapses it's hevel it can't hold us up. What are the things that we'll be looking at as we go through the series? What are the things the book of Ecclesiastes says is hevel? The first one is what we're going to look at today, wisdom and folly. The second one we'll deal with next week, pleasure. We have pleasure with friends, family, sexual pleasure, physical pleasure, comfort. But he says it's like striving after the wind. Because pain does come. It's not always elation. It's like a vapor. It's there for a minute, and then it doesn't last. Same with our work and career. We can see a lot of progress, a lot of growth. We can see that it's helpful for the world, for our families, and then yet it just doesn't deliver. It doesn't give us meaning and significance. It's hevel. Our money. Money feels like it's going to solve all of our problems. It helps to have money in this world. I get that. 
but to lean on it, it's hevel. It's like a vapor. It doesn't deliver. Our mouth and our speech, we can think when we just give somebody a piece of our mind, it'll feel better. If we just say enough words, it will change lives. But that too is hevel. Words are good. But they're not ultimate. And then life and death itself. This life is wonderful. It's good. But it's also filled with pain and brokenness. And one day, death will come. So this life feels like hevel. It feels like a vapor. It's short-lived. It's not filled with everlasting joy. What do we gain when things seem so solid and yet they crumble underneath us? The joy doesn't last. You can't latch on to it. It's hevel. And then the last two chapters, it deals with just some statements of wisdom. And then he concludes with, so what? If this world is hevel, what do we do? And he says, fear God and keep God's commandments. You love God. You love his ways. And you trust him. You trust him. This is the message of the book of Ecclesiastes. So today... Although that's the next seven weeks, today we just dive into one. What do we gain in wisdom over folly? And the answer in Ecclesiastes is you actually gain a lot in pursuing wisdom. So, how does Ecclesiastes present wisdom and folly? What do we gain from wisdom over folly? The first thing is much is gained from wisdom and much is lost in folly. I'm going to help you understand what that means. So, like the Proverbs, Ecclesiastes teaches us the goodness of wisdom, knowledge, walking in God's ways. There's a gain. There's a benefit. Life is meant to generally go better when you walk in God's ways. It's a better life that you will have in pursuing wisdom than in not pursuing it. Both Proverbs and Ecclesiastes are wisdom literature. Actually, also Job. These are wisdom books. And so when you dive into the book of Proverbs and you read Proverbs chapter 1, verse 7, you hear this. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. He lets us in as to what wisdom is. It's it's gaining knowledge about God. And it's, it's developing a fear of the Lord where, you know, I hate snakes, okay? Can't stand them. I actually would say I'm afraid of snakes. That's the emotion that I feel when I look at those slimy little gross creatures. You know, there's a reason why, you know, under the heel. But, you know, I know you think some of them might, you might like them. I don't like them, okay? That's a different type of fear because when I'm afraid of a snake, I want to do what? I want to go the other direction. This type of fear, based upon the knowledge of God, is a fear that actually draws you closer. Because God is a refuge. He's a protector. He's the one that you can find shelter in. So what, what is wisdom? Wisdom is knowing God in such a way that you are drawn into him. You have an awe and a respect of him. This is wisdom, according to the Proverbs. And then, 
I get here this morning, and we're doing our, our pre-service time, and we're praying, and uh, J.D. walks us through kind of what we're walking through today, and I didn't realize this, but the verses that he read before one of the songs are the verses that I have right now to read to you again. So apparently the Lord wants you to really listen to these words, because we read them twice. Proverbs chapter 2, asking the question, what does the Bible say wisdom is? He says, my son, daughter, child, it's a father speaking to a son. If you receive my words and treasure up my commandments with you, making your ear attentive to wisdom. So where is wisdom found? It's found in God's words, treasuring up his commands. And then he says, and inclining your heart to understanding them. Yes, if you call out for insight and raise your voice for understanding, how does wisdom come? It comes from asking the God who gives wisdom to give it to you generously. It's actually a quote from James chapter 1. Ask for wisdom and he will give it to you generously. He tells us more about wisdom. He says, if you seek it like silver and search for it as a hidden treasure. So this takes a pursuit to know God, to know his ways, to know his word, and we go after it like if we were told there's a million dollars underneath your chair. Like, you'd stop right now, and you probably would stop listening to me, and you would be scrounging around. It's just like, okay, I've got to find this thing. That's how he's saying we've got to deal with God and his word. It's wisdom. He says, then you will understand the fear of the Lord, the safety of the Lord, the awe and majesty of the Lord, the one who draws you in and doesn't repel you. That's how you'll understand him, his wisdom. For the Lord gives wisdom, and from his mouth come knowledge and understanding. And he stores up wisdom for the upright. He just gives it generously. And he's a shield. He protects those who walk in wisdom, in integrity. And he guards your path. He paves it with justice. And he watches over the way of his people, his saints, his children. This is the Proverbs view of wisdom, and Ecclesiastes agrees. You want wisdom? Pursue it. Ask for it. Walk in it. Rooted in God's word as a lamp unto your feet. Listen to the way Ecclesiastes said it, says it, Ecclesiastes chapter 2, verses 12 through 14, the verse that I read at the beginning of our sermon. Then I saw that there is more gain in wisdom than in folly, as there's more gain in light than in darkness. The wise person has eyes in his head. It's good to have eyes. Would we all not agree? The foolish person walks in darkness. Ecclesiastes, along with the Proverbs, contrasts wisdom over walking in foolish or ways of folly, foolish ways. What is foolishness? Ecclesiastes paves a pretty clear path for what in the world foolishness is. We've just heard, foolishness is like walking in darkness. What happens when you walk in darkness? You run into walls, right? You trip and fall. You don't see the things in front of you. So when you walk against God's ways, against knowing him, you trip, fall, you stumble. It's folly. Ecclesiastes chapter 4 verse 5 says this. The fool folds his hands and eats his own flesh. 
It's a very disturbing image. There's a lot of lines in poetry that are meant to kind of make you sit and to think on the image. What does it mean to fold the hands? It's speaking about refusing to work. Those who refuse to work will be hungry. Just like Paul says, you don't work, you don't eat. The one who chooses not to work hard is foolish, and they will be hungry. Ecclesiastes chapter 4, verse 13. Better was a poor and wise youth than an old and foolish king who no longer knew how to take advice. The fool listens to his or her own thoughts and ideas and is too proud to learn from others. They don't take advice. That's foolishness. And the Ecclesiastes is putting before us, don't be foolish. Ecclesiastes chapter 5 verse 1 paints a picture of the fool walking into the temple, walking into basically a worship service and offering sacrifices but not listening to God. Going through motions, coming to be with God's people, but not coming for God just to appease some type of external standard. We gather to hear from the Lord. We don't harden our hearts to his word. The one who hardens his heart is foolish. We come into his presence to listen to him, to meet with him. Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verse 3, the fool talks with many words and does not listen to others. The fool, is a lis- the fool is not a listener. They're more of a talker than a listener. And Ecclesiastes 7, 9 says, be not quick in your spirit to become angry, for anger lodges in the heart of fools. You feel like that it's just to hold on to that anger deep in your heart. He says it's lodged there, and it is foolish. You're only hurting yourself. And so we know from the whole of Scripture, we take those angry feelings to a God who says, I'll take care of it, and I love you. You don't have to exact revenge or hold on to the bitterness. And this is what God does to the fool. Fools like me and you before we collided with Jesus. And if you've never found Christ, you're walking in a foolish way. But the Bible says, I think of 1 John 2, verse 1, I write these things to you so that you won't sin. But if you do sin... There is an advocate before the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. The non-foolish one is Jesus. The fool who is changed, the, the one who becomes a saint and a child is one who acknowledges their foolish ways and says, I need the non-foolishness of Jesus. I need his righteousness. And then our hope is in Christ and even deeper than that, our hope is in one day when we will see face to face the king of righteousness. But Ecclesiastes summarizes this whole thing just stating that wisdom 
is gain over folly. Walking in wisdom is gain over folly. Listen to a summary verse from Ecclesiastes chapter 8, verses 1, or verse 1. Who is like the wise? And who knows the interpretation of a thing? A man's wisdom makes his face shine, and the hardness of his face is changed. Do you see what the author is painting here for Ecclesiastes? It is to pursue wisdom, is to pursue a way that is peaceful. It changes you. It makes your face shine. But Ecclesiastes also looks at it from another angle as well. He says even wisdom, although wisdom is much gain and folly is much loss, he has a second point. And that is even wisdom is a vapor. Even wisdom is hevel. What does he mean? Well, Zach Eswine was really helpful in how he spoke about Ecclesiastes as it fits in with the wisdom literature. So you've got Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and Job. In Proverbs, when you're reading through Proverbs, these are not 100%. They are always true. These are general speaking. This is general principles that you can take to the bank. Things will generally go better for you if you walk in wisdom. That's true. Now Ecclesiastes and Job are the exceptions. Like when you look at Job's life, if you were just reading the Proverbs, it would be, you're walking in righteousness, things will go well for you. And then you look at Job's life, and things are not going well for you, so what do his friends conclude? The reason Job is suffering is because he's a sinner. That's that's what's going on. But when you finish the book of Job, what's been happening? Suffering came to Job, not because he was a sinner, but because the world is broken and the devil is real. Now, make it really clear, Job is a sinful man. And he had to be corrected. But the conclusion of his friends were dead wrong. God brings his justice at the end, stating that Job is a righteous man. And that that suffering was not coming because of Job's wrongness, but because of the world's wrongness and the devil's badness. The same for Ecclesiastes. There are exceptions to the general rule. Wisdom is wonderful, but wisdom can also be hevel. And here's what it means. Listen to Ecclesiastes chapter 1. He says, I, the preacher, have been king over Israel in Jerusalem. And applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. (laughs) It's an unhappy business. (laughs) Now that's not what we were just learning. But hear hear him out. It's an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. I've seen everything under the sun and behold, all is vanity and a striving after the wind. That sounds kind of negative, yes? Well... Let's just keep going. Ecclesiastes chapter 2. I'm going to reread the verses I read at the very beginning. Chapter 2, verses 12 through 17. And listen to the contrast. Here is the verses that says wisdom is good and better 
over folly. It says, Then I saw that there is more gain in wisdom than in folly, as there is more gain in light than in darkness. The wise person has eyes in his head, and the fool walks in darkness. But here are the exceptions. And yet, he says, I perceived that the same event happens to all. Then I said in my heart, what happens to the fool will also happen to me. Why in the world have I been so very wise? And I said in my heart that it's also vanity, it's a vapor. For of the wise as of the fool, there's no enduring remembrance. People are going to forget us both. Seeing that in the days to come, all will have been long forgotten. How the wise, they die just like the fool dies. So I hated my life because what is done under the sun was so grievous to me. For all is vanity and a striving after the wind. So here he's stating wisdom is a good pursuit, but I'm going to die just like the foolish person dies. I can die in a car wreck just like a foolish person dies in a car wreck. I can be grieved just like a foolish person is grieved. So why am I pursuing wisdom? Well, let's just be careful. Because as the teacher teaches, not everything his, he is saying or not his whole perspective is worth embracing. Because here, kind of what's he letting us in on is the aim here. He doesn't want to be forgotten, right? If I pursue wisdom, then I'll always be remembered. And if, if this is Solomon, I'll be remembered as the wisest one in the land. And then now one who is wiser than everyone is looking back on his life and saying, I'm the wisest in the land and people are going to forget me. Why am I doing this? Well, here's something that I think the gospel speaks into this. Let's not live to be remembered. Let's live so that Christ is remembered. The joy of this life is not in us being remembered. The joy in this life is being used by God to help generation after generation always remember Christ. My wife wrote in her pretty handwriting, she does these things and writes quotes sometimes for me to encourage me. And we have one in a frame up in our loft. It used to be on my desk and it says this, because God remembers me, I don't have to fear being forgotten. Because God remembers me, I don't have to fear being forgotten. What's that mean is I don't have to live for the eyes of people. And I have to preach this to myself so much. But my God sees me. He remembers me. And that doesn't mean that he just has me in his brain. It means that he is affectionate towards me. I'm never off of his mind. He's always for me. And if he's for me, I do not have to fear being forgotten by other people. Ecclesiastes is a gift to us to help us understand life is painful, but it also helps refocus us onto what is important. Being remembered is not important. Christ being remembered is the aim of our lives. So when we make wisdom ultimate, being wise or having more knowledge than others, when we make it ultimate, it's an unhappy task, and it leaves us Unable to understand all that is going on in the world. It's hevel. 
It's a vapor. You know what it's like if you've been in class before and you just are tempted to really not like that person who always does better than you on a test. You study really hard. They tell you, I didn't study very hard, and their grade is higher than your grade. It's like there's a temptation to be a little frustrated in that moment, right? But even the one who is sometimes the smartest, sometimes it's not enough for them. And kind of like money, you hear a lot from those who are really wealthy that sometimes it's just it's, it's really not enough. You just kind of want more and more and more. You can do the same with wisdom. I just want to know more. I want to know more. I want to know more. I want to know more. That's why I think Paul says knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. You can be so fixed on knowing things. I saw it when I was in seminary. Sometimes it was the most, most unholy hallway because we were just trying to flex about how much we knew from hallway to hallway rather than celebrating the one who knows us. We can do that in Bible studies. We can do that with our fields. I have a Ph.D. in this, or I have this kind of knowledge here, and it's good to know those things. Knowledge and wisdom is good. It's not ultimate. It's Hevel. And so Ecclesiastes 7, 15 to 20 speaks into this. It says, in my vain life I have seen everything. There's a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness, and there's a wicked man who actually prolongs his life and his evil doing, and it just seems backwards. He says, be not overly righteous and do not make yourself too wise. Why should you destroy yourself? It's probably speaking to the idea of making wisdom and the pursuit of knowledge an idol, an ultimate thing. And then he says, be not overly wicked, neither be a fool. Why should you die before your time? He's still acknowledging that living in a foolish way is a bad thing. He says, it is good that you should take hold of this. And from that withhold not your hand, for the one who fears God shall come out from both of them. Fear the Lord. Don't allow wisdom to be something that you try to manipulate God with. Hey, I'm knowing you. I'm spending time with you. I'm pursuing you. I've read this many books about you. Now, you've got to deliver. You've got to give me things. And the way it's tested is when a life of ease or comfort or financial security isn't there anymore. And suffering hits. Are we using God and using wisdom to get things from God or do we want God himself? Do we just want him? Wisdom is found in pursuing the person, not in just getting facts. And if you are just trying to get facts about God, it's hevel. It's like a vapor. You just can't grab onto it. It won't deliver, even wisdom itself. And so Ecclesiastes 8, 10 through 13 says, Then I saw the wicked buried. They used to go in and out of the holy place. They were praised in the city where they had done such things. This is also vanity. Because the sentence against an evil deed is, it's not executed speedily. Haven't you felt that? Like, they're living horribly. Why, why isn't that horrible living stopping? It's not quick enough. And he says, the heart of the children of man is fully set to do evil. You can just look at this world. You can watch the Grammys. You can watch sports interviews. 
You can listen to music lyrics and it just feel like, what are we doing? It's just crazy. It's so against many times what the scripture says is the right way. It says in Ecclesiastes, he says, Though a sinner does evil a hundred times and prolongs his life, yet I know that it will be well with those who fear God, because they fear before him. But it will not be well with the wicked. Neither will he prolong his days like a shadow, because he does not fear before God. He's just wrestling with what we all see in this world. But let me just state this. The problem is not how God has set up the world. Why is the world set up this way? Why is it joy sometimes and then it's pain other times? Why did he set it? Why is the world like this? The problem is not how God set up the world. The problem is trying to hold on to vapor. The problem is us trying to build our lives on things we were never meant to build our lives upon, even wisdom, even knowledge. We can know things and feel like we prop ourselves up against it, and that's going to be good, and that our minds are our significance. I tell you, there was a season in my life when because of some deep traumatic stress I literally lost my memory short-term stuff over time and I remember sitting in with my community group and as I was sitting there with them I said I need you to pray for me because I'm struggling to remember just common things where I'd set things and it was just really debilitating but I tell you what was more debilitating was to begin to think do people only like me because of my mind is my significance and worth only because I can give good information to people and what happens if I could never preach again what happens if I can't think clearly for the rest of my life? And there was a crisis of worth and significance. And this is where a phrase was so helpful for me that before I'm ever a pastor, I'm a person. I'm a child made in the image of God. Someone who is known and who is loved. And my God, even if I was never able to pastor again, never able to preach again, he would look at me and say, I love you. And I've got a plan for you. You can trust me. But I know what it's like to come to the realization face to face with trying to build your life and prop up your significance and worth upon what you know or what you can give people by what you know. And that can happen in all of our lives with so many different things. And the beauty of the gospel is Christ is the substance when everything else is vapor. 
Christ is solid when everything else is like smoke. He sustains. What do I gain from wisdom? I gain a lot from living a wise life. But wisdom in and of itself is not my savior. It's a vapor. Christ is my only hope. I am the child of my father, and he loves me. So what is the summary lesson of Ecclesiastes? It's merrily, 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 merrily. Life is but a vapor. Enjoy Test. Enjoy, sorry, battery died, I think. The summary lesson is this. Enjoy this life and enjoy it to the full. Tonight, if you're at a Super Bowl party, enjoy it. Eat well, laugh a lot, give each other a hard time. It's fun. But the lesson is this. Enjoy everything as temporary but Christ. That's how you can say, merrily, 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 life is but a vapor. This life is a vapor. I can enjoy it, but I enjoy it as temporary, not lasting, except for Christ. The book of Ecclesiastes tells us that the world in which we live is a parable of longing. Our whole life on this earth is constantly telling us we long for something more. We long for something more. When your sports team loses and you feel that pit in your stomach, you're made for something more. Marriage is going well. It feels like it's an end. It's great. And then all of a sudden you have a disagreement. You're longing for something more. The finances are great. You feel like you're top of the world and all of a sudden... Bill comes unexpected, you can't pay it. You long for something more. You want sunshine outside and the rain is pouring down? You were made for something more. And every single one of these moments tells us that this world is a broken world filled with cracks. And everywhere there's a crack, it's in those very spaces where Christ is the substance. He fills the crack. So as I'm walking in here in the cold rain and it's hitting me on the head, I'm literally walking in and I think I'm underneath the awning, but I'm right on the edge of the awning and this drop the size of Montana lands right here on my forehead and I did not like that at all. That's a crack in this broken world. And what I remember is this, there will come a day when I'm in the presence of Almighty God and His radiance is so beautiful, there's no need for a sun because He is the glory that I've longed for. And every crack in our lives is meant to be a space where we stop and we look and we say, Jesus is the substance to fill in that moment, to fill in that crack in our lives. Ecclesiastes wants us to remember 
when we look at pleasure and we look at the degrees that we might have hanging on our wall, or we look at our marriage, or we look at sex, or we look at friendships, or just the, the nap on the couch, and we think of all those things. Those are wonderful gifts, but they're temporary. The nap will end. Even worse, you'll be dead asleep, and you'll get interrupted, right? Knock on the door, the bark of the dog, a kid coming in having to ask a question. It's like, I just wanted a nap. That's a crack. In the broken world where you need Jesus to show up and to say, it's just pointing me that I'm made for something more substantive, something better. These are cracks. And so what we do is we laugh and we acknowledge that this world is temporary. And I enjoy a nap on the couch, but I don't, quote, need it to be happy. It's good. It's not ultimate. Because this life is a vapor, Christ is a substance. What about career and work? Bosses are cruel sometimes. Co-workers can be selfish sometimes. Pay can be insufficient. Your reputation can be good and then not be good because of poor performance on a project. The task can be hard and sometimes cruelly, unusually heavy. These are cracks in our world. But Christ is the substance. He is our peace. He is the one we work for, not for ultimately our boss or our coworker. He is the strength that we need. He is the one that meets financial needs. He is the one that gives us an eternal reward. That's what we work for. Life is a vapor, but Jesus is the substance. Our money, it can grip our hearts. It can wear us down. It seemed to promise security only for us to never feel like we have enough. It feels like if we have it, we'll have significance and meaning. But there are cracks that money leaves. The hevel of money is filled up with the substance who is Christ. There's a reason why the psalmist says, the word of God is better than gold, even much fine gold. There's just greater treasures. Christ and his word is the substance. And what about when life ends? Life is good. Sometimes it does feel dreamy, and we should have an optimistic outlook because we are seeking to walk in wisdom, and God is with us, but life is painful. And all of us have experienced the massive hit that death brings to a loved one, to something that we love so much. And it's in the cracks that death brings when we see that that crack was split wide open with the life of Jesus Christ. Death has been defeated. And this earth is not the final story. There's a new heavens and a new earth that we long for where we will see Jesus face to face. The substance will be so real and so true and so sure that we will have pleasure forevermore. And folly will be nowhere around. And we will be with wisdom, Jesus Christ, the righteous. Dear friends, may we pursue, seek wisdom, but not as ultimate, 
enjoy this life, but enjoy it as temporary because it's a vapor, but Christ is the substance. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I ask that in this moment you would help us. Help us enjoy this life to the full, to eat well, laugh a lot, work hard, rest hard, but enjoy this life as temporary. In every longing of our hearts, help us to see that this pain is meant to be a reminder that you are our comfort. Jesus is the Savior. He is the satisfier. He's the lover of our souls. He is the sustainer. And Father, we just long to see him face to face where our longings will be no more. And so, Father, I pray that right now in this kind of moment of reflection, where some of us have not been pursuing wisdom, we've been holding on to anger. We might have been lazy. We might not have been taking advice or listening for advice. We've just been speaking. We might have forgotten that Christ is present in and among us and started just living for all the treasures of this earth. Father, I pray that you would turn our hearts today. You would remind us that all of this is hevel. It's good, but not ultimate. It's like a vapor. And I pray that what you would overwhelm us with is the substance of Jesus. pray that you would cause hearts all around this space, everyone hearing my voice, to say, Lord, you are my portion. You are enough. I love you. And even though I can't always understand, because I don't have all knowledge, I don't have all wisdom, I can trust you. Some of us, our faith feels so small. Help us just to say, In this moment, we believe. Help our unbelief. Father, I pray that you would help us to lay our sin before you, but to also receive your forgiveness. Help us not to try to pay for our sin through our actions, but to receive your loving mercy to know it's been paid for on the cross, to finally say, I surrender all of my life to you. I surrender it all to you, and I want to live my life for you. Father, bring to mind that which we have leaned on too heavily. Help us to enjoy what we are meant to enjoy. But help us to ultimately put all our weight on Christ as the substance. As we prepare our hearts for the Lord's Supper, I'm just going to leave a moment here of reflection. And then with our actions, we'll declare that Christ, He did it all, He paid it all, so that we might receive it all. In this moment, give your heart to the Lord all your longing.